Hello, and welcome to the Wild River Podcast. This is your host, Sam. And, you know, this is a podcast all about celebrating self-expression. It celebrates stepping into alignment with your authentic self, whatever that means for you. We talk about the tools and modalities that help us get there. A lot of spirituality tools because that has helped me profoundly in kind of identifying what I wanted out of life and finding the strength and confidence and clearing some of the fears to help me take action towards those things that I want out of life. And I'm really excited about this episode today. I've been thinking about it for a really long time. Today, I am sharing my career story. I'm going to this episode in two parts simply because I have a lot of content to get through and a lot of lessons to share with you. So as you might know, I've spoken about it before on this podcast, but if you're new, welcome. I'm a lawyer. I still I still am engaged with law, but I used to be a full-time practicing lawyer and I don't do that anymore. Now I split my time with a lot of other things. I'm a human design reader. I'm a human design teacher. I run a program called Human Design Training. I hold space. I'm a facilitator. And most recently, I've really stepped into my interests and gifts as a coach. I have been coaching in different capacities over a really long time, but especially over this last year. But only recently did I really start coaching one-on-one. I did a, a beta program, a practice program. And kind of right now, right when you're probably going to be listening to this episode, I'm launching my own program called Sunbeam. I'll get into this later, but you know, this podcast, my Instagram wild river has been much more focused on human design over the last year. And you're going to see a shift. I'll still talk about human design. Human design's the best. It's really helped me, but you're going to see me talk about coaching too. And I coach on a lot of different things. I coach on helping to support people and connecting with their emotions so they can get clarity of how they're feeling about things and what they want. Emotions are really, really valuable tools. I And and a lot of people have a hard time connecting and feeling and identifying their emotions. I help people connect and identify their needs, figure out what their needs are practice articulating them and developing the confidence to hold them and to make action towards them. I support people in building confidence in setting goals and taking action and setting boundaries in processing fear and connecting with their intuition and kind of everything that goes into living a life that feels authentic and empowered and true to you. And coaching has been honestly, such a gift. I It's been such a gift to me and it's a big part of my story. I'll be sharing about it here, but being able to support people and for me, developing my coaching skill sets and developing the practice of coaching, I don't think I really realized how how much of a skill it is. Of course, it's a developed profession. And I don't think I fully recognize that in the past. It has been the biggest privilege and I'm so honored to be supporting the incredible people that I have the chance to support. So you'll be hearing more about that and what I've been learning in that. But right now we're going to be getting into kind of how I made my big switch. So I was a big law attorney, which is, um, I'll get into what that word means, but a practicing full-time attorney in New York City at a large law firm working rigorous hours on complicated matters. And I realized 
this, I wasn't happy. I wasn't respecting what I wanted out of my life. I was holding a lot of fear. I didn't want to make decisions out of fear. And so I left and I left without really a plan. Not that that's the right path for everybody or even really a a path that's on the table, but it was for me and I took it and it was absolutely the right decision. In this two-part story, I'm going to talk a little bit about just my path what that looked like, what it felt like to be there. I'm going to talk about all the lessons, the mindset shifts I needed to learn to have the confidence to make a big shift like this. It doesn't just happen. You kind of need to, or in my experience, I needed to prepare myself for it. I'm going to talk about what were really the, like, why then, what finally made me do it? Because I know a lot of people know they're unhappy at work, but are not yet ready to make shifts. And I'll speak about that. And then I'll speak a little bit about what I'm doing now, but I think I'll save um, kind of what happened after I left for the most part for later episodes. I'm so glad you're here with me. I'm excited to get into it. Honestly, I feel a little bit nervous. I'm not sure why maybe it'll come to me as I share this. I think it's just an important story for me. And I, for a long time, was afraid of sharing it because I know I'm very fortunate and privileged to have been able to take this shift and take this jump. And I think I was afraid of judgment and I think I was afraid of judgment anyway, but I'm really happy I did it. And I'm really happy I made that change and it's just provided me so much joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in my life. And I want to provide, you know, share my process and stories for anybody who could benefit from hearing this perspective. So let's get into it. So let me start just a little bit back in the beginning. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, outside of Phoenix in Tempe, Arizona. I was a always a really strong student. I really liked school. I was interested in environmentalism and sustainability. Growing up, I went to a marine biology camp. I was a scuba diver. I loved to snorkel. I I started scuba diving at like 13 or 14, and I just loved it so much. Um, We're only six hours from San Diego, and so I would go there for the marine biology camp for like a week in the summer. And I also would go um, body surfing and go swimming and stuff in San Diego. My dad grew up a surfer in Santa Cruz, California, and we always kind of stayed connected to the ocean. I liked school a lot. I was also really involved with marching band and all different musical things, but I loved being in the classroom. I would get stressed though. I I certainly would get stressed, but I I just really thrived in those environments. I went to college at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. This was a totally random place for me to go. I didn't even know about UNC. I didn't know it's a basketball program. If for anybody who doesn't know, UNC has a kind of a famous basketball program. It's where the famous player Michael Jordan went to school. I didn't really know about North Carolina. Just a few people had said I might like it and I knew it was a good school. I wanted to go study finance because my parents had a rule that I need to go. I couldn't go anywhere out of state that the in-state program was just as good or better. And in my mind, I was like, I'll study business because that's applicable to everything. So I applied to schools with really good business programs. I was deciding between NYU, New York University, which is in Manhattan and UNC Chapel Hill. And I went to Chapel Hill and it took about a year at most for me to realize I don't want to be a business major. I want to study environmental studies. I studied environmental studies with a minor in marine science at Chapel Hill. 
I had a good experience. I've had, I had some rough things that happen. You can go listen to my first two episodes. There's some kind of culturally toxic things there. Like there are many universities, but overall I had a really positive experience and I didn't really know what I was going to do with my environmental studies degree. It's not an environmental science degree. It's not a technical degree, though I did take technical classes. By technical, I mean like biology, chemistry, physics. I wasn't really prepared or educated to go work doing like analytics with environmental science or engineering or biology studies, anything like that. So it was more social science based. I spent a semester in college. I spent a semester in Bangkok. And then I spent another semester in the Outer Banks of North Carolina at a Coastal Studies Institute where I took an environmental law class, an environmental policy class, a like social science environmental class and a biology class. And it was just such a great immersive experience for me. I loved being on the coast. I loved learning about water law and coastal law. I love my environmental law class. At that point, I had already taken the LSAT and was planning on going to law school. That just kind of solidified it for me. And I wanted to study environmental law. I think at the time I decided to go to law school when I was a sophomore, I was 19. I remember being 19, enrolling for my LSAT prep class. And I got the idea because I was, had like an internship and was writing a policy paper. And my dad was like, oh, you may want to consider law school, which I don't think he like, I think he regretted saying that because he proceeded to send me articles about how hard it was at that time in the legal market. Although my parents were very, very supportive of my, once I decided to go, um, at that time, the legal market was, this was like 2011. So it was kind of at the tail end of the recession and a lot of people had just graduated from law school and it was not like an ideal market. And I really loved Uh, I decided environmental law, that sounds perfect. I took a few undergraduate environmental law classes. I loved them. I think law school is really well suited for me and the type of thinking and problem solving that I like to do. I decided to apply to schools with strong environmental law programs. And I wanted to stay in the South, although I didn't apply to a ton of Southern schools. I didn't have like really competitive, like super competitive LSAT or grades. So I couldn't go to top, top. I didn't even apply to top, top schools like Yale. They have a strong environmental law program. But the schools I applied to were all great schools. I was looking at, I was mostly deciding between Tulane University, which has a great environmental law program that's based in New Orleans, and uh, Lewis and Clark that's based in Portland. I had a friend that went to Tulane who is focusing environmental law, um, Alex. Hi, Alex, if you're listening. And he went to college with me. He's awesome. He was a really powerful mentor, really amazing mentor and really great friend to me. And when I went to go visit, he kind of helped like arrange to put me in some really cool environmental law classes that I don't think I would have gotten access to had he not kind of like asked his professors and set this up for me. And it was just so fun. I just loved the professors there. The director of the environmental studies was this man named Oliver Hauk. He has since retired, but he was just a maverick. I, in my environmental law work that I'm doing for a client right now, I'm reading these papers and I see him everywhere. Like he's published everywhere. It was really exciting to be there. So anyway, Decided to go to Tulane, study environmental studies, study environmental law, loved water law, got connected with people there. The professors there were amazing, are amazing. And 
went through law school. I was very fortunate to do really well my first year of law school. And that's important because I grades for law school make a big difference if you want to work at a law firm. Law firms really care about your first year grades. It's kind of wild how much rides on that first year. Not that you can't be successful if those grades don't come out the way that you want them to, but it really helps if they do. And I had nearly perfect grades my first year of law school. So I was in the top 3% of my class and that opened up a lot of opportunities for me, including a selection of really prestigious law firms in New York City. Some of the top five, top 10, when you like Google most prestigious law firms, they all came up. And even though these places I wouldn't go do environmental law, I realized, wait, this is a really important opportunity. The law school that I went to is an amazing law school, but it's not a top, top law school. And to get to go to firms and be, you know, practice at places that have some of the best lawyers in the country with law students from the best schools and work on some of the most important cases was a really big opportunity. So after my first year of law school, I interviewed and got hired to start at an internship the next year. Law school is really interesting because you kind of know like where you, you might know where you're going to go after you graduate after your first year, even though it's three years. And um, because when you go work at these big New York firms, they're called big law. That's a uh, big law is a term that people use to refer to large law firms with lots of attorneys. I think there were like 900 attorneys just in my office and work on really big matters for large companies, large financial institutions like big banks, large pharmaceutical, tech, oil and gas, really big deals, really big cases that go on for a long time and have billions of dollars kind of at stake. So I knew I was going to go to New York. I interned. I I didn't just intern there. I spent a summer interning in Denver. I did another internship in Austin, Texas, but realized I wanted to be at this really amazing law firm in New York City, which is where I ended up. But a year into law school. So again, stuff happens really early on. So this was kind of the beginning of my second year. I was hired by a federal judge to work for him for a year after graduation. So federal judges often will hire two years out. And this is an opportunity called clerking. It's a really incredible opportunity. It's competitive. It is something that the law firms really encourage. They'll defer your offer and they'll give you a pretty significant bonus to be able to go have this year working for a federal judge because you learn so much. You learn a lot about how lawsuits work, how court systems work. You get a lot of writing experience. It can really build your confidence and your abilities as a lawyer. For me, it was one of the best opportunities opportunity, certainly, but best experiences of my life. After I graduated, I worked for one year for an amazing judge in New Orleans. And I might tear up because I just adore him so much. And he um, passed away earlier this year, but it was an incredible, such an expansive opportunity for me. I feel his presence with me all of the time. He was such a loving mentor to his clerks and I, the other woman who worked for him in the office were brilliant and gifted and amazing mentors and feel like family. And I just am so lucky that I had that chance. I felt then, and I still feel now that I hit this jackpot and it also helped me develop confidence. And it was the first time in my life where, because I went straight from undergraduate to law school, that I 
had this space in my, you know, I worked, but I was working more of a traditional hours, like more nine to five. And so at night I would have this time. And unless there was something really important happening, like a trial or something that required a lot of attention, my nights were to myself. Like there was pretty good work boundaries. And I was also making a salary for the first time, a full-time salary. And I had benefits. And I mean, I was only like 24. So I think I was still under my parents, but I had all this space and I started having hobbies and I started having different self-exploration and learning more about myself as an individual. And that was really powerful foundations. It's also where I started my spiritual awakening. And I speak about that in the first few episodes of this podcast. Okay. I think that's a good enough background. So then I arrived in New York city four years ago. I just practiced at this at this big law firm for two years, and um, which isn't really that much time. I've actually been away from it for about as long as I was there, but it it will impact me for the rest of my life. It was a place that was filled with truly incredible lawyers, and I'm truly so grateful for the experience. Even though I'm going to say some things about it that was really challenging for me. It's not really a reflection of the place. This industry is difficult. There's a lot of reasons that it's challenging and difficult, um, including because of the level of service that is provided for our for the firm's clients by these law firms. And I feel like I was blessed to have the chance to be there and to meet the people that I did there. So absolutely no shade. If I'm if anyone from my old colleague from New York are listening to this. I love you guys and I'm grateful for you, but I also want to share the realities of the experience. So as soon as I got there, I realized, and this was well understood that working at these law firms is very rigorous. People will tell you, you tell them where you're going to be working. They'll say, Ooh, or hope you're ready. Or they'll say things like, you're not going to be sleeping for the next two years. And that can be somewhat of an exaggeration, but the hours are long. I think as a consistent pace, people certainly are working 60 hours a week but it wasn't really unusual to work 70 or 80. And I would be surrounded by people who were on really fast paced or challenging matters and were working 90 hours a week plus. I knew right away that, and just to be clear, this work is very well compensated. You are very well compensated for that work. And that's also a lot reason a lot of people go there because a lot of people have debt after law school. The work I knew right away did not resonate with me. I was still going to try, but I it just wasn't exciting for me. I knew I would not be there forever, but I, like I said, I knew that the lawyers were very br- brilliant and that this was a very important and valuable opportunity, and I would regret it if I didn't lean in. And I realized right away that I needed to save money. I was well compensated, but New York City is an expensive place to live, and it's very easy to spend money there, especially when you're working really hard. There can be this mentality of like, well, I've had such a long week. I'm just going to go really hard this week and I'm going to go out to a really, really nice dinner. I'm going to treat myself with these clothes. And I still did those things, but right away I set up different savings accounts and I kind of did automatic deposits at a pretty high amount. And that allowed me to save a lot of money because I realized pretty much immediately I might want to go to environmental nonprofits. I might want to go do work that felt more meaningful and I was more connected to the mission and that would include a significant pay cut. And I wanted to set myself up financially. So when I wanted to leave, I had the financial means to do that. 
So I just want to share a little bit more about kind of what the work experience was like over these two years. Um, And I think this is pretty typical for big law experiences, though I can't speak for everybody. Over that period, I was consistently working pretty intense hours. Um, Particularly, there was a particular period where our department, I was a litigator, which meant I worked on matters, worked on cases that could go to court or were being, were basically one person, one party, one company sued another company. Or I worked on cases where there was a bankruptcy or where, and that was involving a judge or courts. And I worked on cases where there was an investigation, um, perhaps by a federal like agency or some sort of division into a company. And I, this is distinct from other types of law there. Um, the law firm is really well known for mergers and acquisitions, basically where one company is buying another or raising debt or more what we call transactional law. So it was, I didn't always work 60, 70, 80 hours. Some weeks I worked way less, but if there was a particular period where if you were working less than 60, if you're billing less than 60 to 65 hours, which means if you're working less than 70, you are going to get staffed up, which means you're going to get assigned to new cases. We had some pretty clear expectations on us because the firm had taken on some really big and important cases. And these cases had a lot of attorneys on them. We were very busy and there was a clear expectation of working 70, 80 plus hours a week. That wasn't the case for all of it. The morale was tense during those periods because people were very tired, but there were really rigorous expectations. And it wasn't just that you had the flexibility, like you could come in late. I would often come in at 10 or even 11 come into work, but you needed to be available on your phone pretty much all the time, especially when you're kind of a first, second, third, fourth year, actually really at any, at any age. Um, There was a clear expectation that during the week, during kind of typical business hours, so like 8 a.m. to maybe 8 p.m., the expectation was to respond to emails within one hour. And if you were outside, like on the weekends or later at night, a few hours. If I, I specifically remember getting emails at 9, 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and if I didn't respond right away, I would get a follow-up or a call. Now, that wasn't everywhere, but that sort of thing was pretty common. I would get emails early in the morning saying, hey, can we hop on a weekend? Hey, can we hop on a call in a few hours? Or, hey, I need you to do this research. I need it tonight. So I would be out, you know, up brunch. I'd be like, I got to go. Like, I got to go home right now. I would take my computer out with me because I would know that I would get emails on the weekend that would require my immediate attention. And it was really hard to make plans or feel like you had autonomy over your time. As soon as I woke up, I checked my email. As soon as I went to bed, I checked my email. I hated sleeping in on the weekends, or I would, but I would set alarms, particularly if we had anything going on, which was pretty common at like eight, at nine, at 10, to see if anything really important was coming in that I needed to respond to. And this wasn't just me. I'm not saying that like, oh, I was this model associate. That really was expected. Not that everybody did that. There are people that didn't, but that was very much the expectation and the tone. And when you're a first, second, third year, fourth year associate, 
a lot of how you're gauged as like your value is how responsive you are. Being responsive is a key, key value. And so it made you feel like you always were attached to your phone. I remember trying to go take workout classes and it was really hard because there is an expectation that we're, I'm going to need you to respond to this email. Going to therapy for an hour could feel really difficult to do. Go taking a walk and not bringing your phone or just tap putting it away. Now, if I had something really important, I might tell my team, hi, I have a friend coming in town Saturday night. I'm probably going to be out of pocket. I have a wedding. But unless you're taking actual vacation, people would certainly try to respect that. But you needed to work and the matters and you know, the client needs or whatever your manager thought that the client needs were were priority unless you had actually taken time off and you have cover. And that wasn't something that you could just do like every weekend. There were people around me, like I said, who were billing 300 hours a month, which means you're working 360 hours a month, a lot, like 90 hours a week. I don't think I ever had months where I billed that high maybe one or two, which was pretty fortunate, but that was not an uncommon thing. The other thing that was really challenging for working there and working in this sort of industry is there wasn't a lot of personal connection. You didn't know very much about your colleagues, even though you'd spend a lot of time together, everybody kind of kept things distant in the hallways. You wouldn't really look at in the eye a lot. You, you know, you'd have a few friends and they'd drop by, but overall it was generally pretty impersonal. And that made there was this feeling like you couldn't really have a lot of a personality or you couldn't talk about what you did on the weekends. You didn't want to. It was kind of like notable. You know, if someone was going on vacation. You might not even know where they're going. You might ask, oh, where are you going? And they'd be like, oh, I'm somewhere in Turkey. And you're like, oh, cool. And then they'd go and then they'd come back and then they'd immediately start working. And there was not this like warm familial like, let me show me pictures from your trip. Like that wasn't really part of the team culture that might happen in small sidebar conversations. But I think I kind of, we did activities outside of the office. I can think of twice. Like I did one team dinner, two different team dinners over the two years that I was there. And that was really the only time I saw my colleagues out of the office unless I had developed close friendships. And a few of them I have actually somebody I met at this law firm is officiating my wedding and is one of our closest friends. Um, There's a few other people that I met here who will be at our wedding who are really close friends of mine. So that could happen, but it was not a norm. And everybody was so focused on getting their hours in that it was like nobody wanted to take time from each other. And there wasn't just a lot of openness and expressiveness. The other thing is while the hours were rigorous and the culture felt tight and restrictive. That actually wasn't the biggest issue for me. The biggest issue was I just simply didn't resonate with the work. I I wrote a list a month or about two months before I left about everything I didn't like about working there. And a lot of, yes, there are these, um, I found it recently when I was reviewing my journals in preparation for this. Yes, there were these I like eye contact things that were kind of weird and these long hours and feeling like you always need to be on your phone and feeling like your time isn't your own. And those are big things. That's really significant. It's been two years, so I don't feel that. But at the time that felt like some of the biggest challenges, but the, as much of a big challenge and why it wouldn't just go to a different law firm without as high of um, billing expectations or with more kind of work-life boundaries 
is that I simply didn't like legal work that much. I realized I thought I did. I didn't. I didn't really like legal research. I didn't like legal writing as much as I thought. I do like it with certain topics more, and I actually still do legal research and writing, and I do enjoy it more. I didn't find the cases that interesting. I wasn't really connecting, you know, working for these large corporate clients, even though a lot of the clients I I really liked and I respected, and I, um, you know, truly hoped for the best for them. I just wasn't like moved. I was not, I wasn't moved by these cases and that's common to not feel like a super close connection to them, but I just didn't feel, I didn't like the work. It was draining for me and it, I always felt frustrated. I always felt bored. It was always like moving through mud. At the beginning, I thought it was my fault. I was like, I just need to be more positive about this. I just need to lean in more. And I appreciate that in myself. I'm really, I really truly tried to be like so enthusiastic and genuine. And that was some really positive feedback I've received from a number of my teams that I embraced the work, even when it was really hard. I remember getting a a professional review that was like, even if there's truly like a, a tsunami of work coming towards her, like she still, she like embraces it with open arms. And I was so pleased that that's how my colleagues saw me because that was my intention. Yet on the inside, I just, there was no part of it that excited me. And that was one of the things that showed me that this wasn't a right fit. It wasn't just the hours because I will say for my last six to nine months, I got on a team that was much more the natural rhythm of the case, what didn't have a lot of emergencies. And so there wasn't a lot of like, Hey, I need this right now, Sunday morning, like wherever you are, you need to get home. I need this six hour research done in seven hours. There wasn't a lot of that. There wasn't a lot of like, Hey, clear your plans. We're going to be busy all weekend. It doesn't matter. I remember having close friends come and visit and stay with me. And I literally worked the entire time that they were there. I tried to sneak away and go to a comedy show. And I spent the entire time out on the street, like writing emails and doing research on my phone and on calls and stuff. Even taking an hour was just too hard um, because something important had come through and there was an emergency. And so I was on a case that didn't have a lot of emergencies. Uh, It was extremely well-managed. I was beautifully mentored by the lawyers most senior from me. And I learned a lot from them on professionalism, on management, of um, on being a good lawyer. And so I was kind of in the best case scenario. And that's what showed me this just wasn't the right thing for me because it wasn't it wasn't like these horrible lifestyle things or that I wasn't connecting with the people. It just simply wasn't, I didn't like the work. And so that not liking the work created this feeling inside of me that I was deadening. It created this feeling that I was frustrated. And I started to have all these physical manifestations of this. I felt like my body was, my throat was closing and I would get super anxious. I would be in deposition prep sessions or going to go see clients. And I could feel, I would feel like my throat was closing even though this wasn't related to prior traumas that if I've, if you've heard this podcast before, I've spoken about this fear of my throat closing related to a, a prior trauma that had cleared at this point. It was my body saying this isn't the right environment and it was very difficult to focus. And I would be kind of moved, not moved by tears because I was in depositions, but like I would have to focus so hard to keep myself engaged and to not give in to this well of fear, like rising inside of me. I had a really hard time 
prioritizing myself. And I think I generally had like a healthy confidence coming in. I think I was in a better shape than many of my peers as far as choosing myself and making time to exercise and not responding to emails right away. Even within that, I still had a really hard time creating time unless it was in these specific pockets. And I felt a lot of guilt. I was living for trips and weekends. I would still schedule weekends and I would still do things and just hope that it worked out. And it would sometimes be hard. You know, one time I was in the Hamptons, uh, a friend invited me, his parents had a place there and I just like worked all day and you don't know, you know, but I had other times when I went to a concert and everything aligned and nothing came up that week, but I needed those weekends to float me along because I wasn't getting my satisfaction in the daytime. I felt miserable. I felt drained and it started to undermine self, my self-confidence because, because I wasn't enthusiastic about the work. I didn't feel like I was good at it. And I felt like I had to try so hard to be good. And I did get good feedback. Like I, I think I was a pretty good lawyer. And I think I added a lot of, I think I added value to my teams, but I didn't feel that. And that I think there's something to, when you hate your work, you don't feel good about yourself and it undermines your ability to feel valuable. I really forced positivity and enthusiasm as a coping skill. And so I want to give a little bit of context to where I was also at this time. And then I'm going to get into kind of the key lessons learned. So at this time, I was having a spiritual awakening. I was seeing a therapist for the first time. I And by the way, when I would tell my team, which I didn't do a lot because it felt weird to share something personal when we didn't share a lot of personal facts. But sometimes I would say like, I have an appointment or I have therapy. And people would, of course, respect that. Like everybody wants to respect people's times. It's just that the sort of work that we took was time sensitive often. And in that firm's commitment to their clients, they needed to get things done as quickly as possible and provide the best possible service. And part of the reason things would, it would take so much time is because every single thing was thoughtful. That's something I really learned there. Every single thing was thoughtful everything. Like we would send an email to a someone who worked at the firm and we might go through five to five revisions before it went up to a senior person. If something was going to a client, it was often vetted and approved, even an email, even a casual letter, like nothing that was, you know, necessarily legally significant for stuff that did was going into court, like being filed with court. Every single thing was, you know, combed with a fine, fine tooth comb poured over. It was like um, a footnote might get 12 revisions. A paragraph would go back and forth, back and forth. There was so much intention poured into this work and such a dedication to excellence. And you just absorb a lot being in that environment. You learn how to push yourself to be, you learn how to get things done as good as you can the first time, because you know, if you don't really put in the full effort and like, turn over every stone you can think of. It's going to come back and you're just going to have to do it again and again. So you learn how to be good. But it also means that it's keeping up with that level of excellence is difficult and that takes time. And of course, lawyers aren't trained to be managers. So sometimes you just had a bad manager that was chaotic or anxious and they were projecting um, that anxiety on you or on the work and you were feeling that. So I was 
in my own therapy, in my own working with healers and mediums, connecting with my intuition, connecting with my emotions for the first time in a really meaningful and thoughtful way. I was taking goal workshops. I was identifying my values. I was realizing what's really important to me out of, out of my life. And I was observing, am I aligned with that? Which the answer was no. I was clearing trauma in my body. I was using my voice and sharing things. And that was purging fear from me, which made me more confident. I was exploring self-care. I was really leaning into meditation and a gratitude practice and affirmations. Every day I would say these affirmations, like I want to feel valuable with my team. I want to contribute. I want to feel my purpose at work. I really tried to set myself up to be really a good, like I really tried to own my part in it. So I knew I was putting in my all, even though I didn't always feel like that because I would get to work sometimes and like totally just waste time and like be on Instagram or not do what I should be doing. But I also really try to set up my mornings and my care to give myself the best shot. And I started taking in a lot of different content. I was taking in spirituality content. I was seeing people. I had some friends who had left their corporate jobs and their legal jobs to pursue coaching and healing work and kind of alternative careers. Um, or maybe they're still working in their trade or craft, but doing it in a really alternative way. And that was starting to open my mind of there are other ways to approach this. There are other ways to be in the world. And it doesn't all have to look like kind of whatever the path presented to me. Okay, so I want to share kind of the big realizations that I've had. And if you're still with me, thank you for listening to all these details. I'm never brief. I try to be, yeah, I have an outline, but it doesn't always, it doesn't always happen. And I feel like context is so important. So Let's get into the things I started realizing. So my first realization is my career should not feel draining, frustrating, or deadening. It is possible to feel fulfilled and excited by my work. I started to really realize that human design was actually a really important tool to help me realize that, that I think before I, when I first started, I was like, I need to change myself to like this work. I need to fit myself to like it. If it's draining for me, that's a me problem fully. And I need to figure that out. I need to get my head in the game and I need to like this. Or I started to think, look, people just hate their jobs. It's just what it is. You go in, you clock in. I mean, you start your billable clock, whatever it is, and you hate it. And that, and then you come home and you try to make the nights and weekends worth it. And I started to just realize that doesn't have to be the case. My career does not have to feel draining. My mom has, uh, both my parents have always loved their jobs and they've always, and they've also worked rigorous and challenging jobs. My mom worked very, very rigorous engineering job for 40 years and loved her work. So I had a lot of models around me. I have a lot of family that loves what they do. And I started to challenge this notion that I had that I had to teach myself to love my job. I realized that if I wasn't feeling satisfied, it's not necessarily my fault. This may not be the right fit for me. I started noticing signs that I didn't like my job. And you may have heard everything I expressed over the last 20 minutes and be like, yeah, no shit, Sam, you didn't like your job. But I really didn't fully realize because it became normalized um, because everybody around me, not only in my place of work, but many people in New York City work these really challenging, rigorous jobs that are draining. And I think a lot of people in the world do that. 
I was very fortunate to be well compensated for mine. Um, a lot of people work those jobs and are not well compensated. And that is such a privilege that I hold. So I started to realize I didn't want the job of anyone more senior than me. It wasn't like, okay, I just have to get through these next two years. This is, you know, I'm in the grunt work or it is true. Like your first few years working in that sort of thing, you do get a lot of work that kind of sucks. I didn't want the job of the people who were two or four or six or God forbid, like 10 or 20 years more senior than me. I remember thinking it's so hard to make it that long at this sort of law firm. The standards of excellence are so high. Every single person in that role is so brilliant. But I was also like, even if I could, I don't want that. That sounds terrible. I realized that people who were really successful in those roles, the the partners at the law firms, that's what we call them, really seem to love their job. They seem genuinely happy and excited. They could seem tired. Sometimes many of them had kids. I could see that they, you know, they'd be on vacation and working the whole time. And I was like, that probably is hard for you, but they really seemed happy to be there and fulfilled. And I realized, okay, that's never going to be me there. I realized I needed my weekends to fill me up. I realized I had to work very hard to stay grateful and positive. I would write my gratitude journals every day. I actually started a gratitude and affirmation practice at my work. And I invited all the people in my department, all the associates, it was like 200 people. And I rented a room twice a week and I would lead a five minute meditation and a gratitude practice. And like one person would come, two people would come, but it was my way of trying to contribute and support other people in the workplace. It was very scary for me. That was like a really big stretch. I started doing that about just three or four months before COVID hit. I'm about a year and a half into my, to my working there. I realized that I was consistently drained, but when I'd come home, I'd get a ton of energy. So I didn't have the energy for work, but I had a lot of energy for other things. And I realized I was feeling really anxious in my body. And I had learned at that point that my body speaks to me. I didn't fully know why. I didn't know if what, what was causing it because I knew that there could be some trauma or things outside of work. But I noticed that I would feel this overwhelming sense of dread. And when I, I would having these, um, a few times I had kind of like a panic episode. I wouldn't really call it a full panic attack, but kind of overwhelmed with tears, feel like my throat's closing, difficult breathing. And that would happen when I was like ending vacation and about to go to work or before I had really big work experiences. And so I started noticing and wondering like, this kind of seems like it's adding up. I learned that my body was telling me something. And if my body is speaking to me, I need to listen. The other thing that I learned over these two years is that there are many ways to define success, that success to me did not just mean working at a prestigious place. Success meant loving my work, feeling like I was a good friend and I was supportive and available to my friends, family and partner, that I could care for myself and my body. It was not cool to me to like not feel like I had time to work out like that's that wasn't cool. Like I, I wanted to feel like I was, I wasn't cool. I didn't feel like I had time to volunteer. I mean, I did pro bono work, but like I wasn't engaged in my community and that I didn't really call my friends. It just made me feel lame and kind of like a loser. And I was like, I, that's not the way I want to be in the world. I realized success could look like a lot of things and that how I viewed success might need to shift because for a long time, I think I really attached to Um, my career success looking a certain way. And I wanted to broaden that. 
I realized, and this was a big one for me, that there are many ways to make money. I didn't have to, by leaving a law firm that is well compensated, or even if I went to a different law firm, but that sort of work, by leaving that didn't mean I was just never going to be able to make money in my career. I might make less for a while. I might choose to go into a path like certain nonprofit work where the pay, legal nonprofit work pay is much lower than a law firm. And that work is also very competitive. It's very difficult to get those things. Those are amazing opportunities. And I might choose to do that, but there is a world in which I could do what I liked and I could make money. And I started seeing examples of people who I knew had this. And I started looking and being like, well, why can't that be me? The other really big realization that came around kind of that realization is just because I can't see the path from where I'm sitting doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because I don't know what the role is doesn't mean it's not out there. How am I supposed to see it? If I want a job that doesn't look like a traditional law firm job or in-house counsel, and I just invite you to apply this to however it fits for you. So if you don't want a job that kind of directly relates to what your colleagues or people who have kind of transitioned out of wherever you work, but it's like an adjacent job or field. So in law, it would be like going to work in-house for Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or, you know, maybe uh, maybe a, a fintech startup or something. Just if I don't want that job or a partner, a law firm job, like those are the jobs I'm being exposed to. That's what is in my immediate line of sight. That doesn't mean there are other roles out there. I was talking to a client about this and I was kind of like, it's kind of like sitting in the, like the second row of a plane and all you can see are the seats kind of right to your left or right. And in front of you, you, you're not turning around yet and assuming that, oh, there's no seats behind me because I, I can't see them. And in fact, there are plenty of things. You're just not in the best place to see them. And can I trust that if I make a change or I open up space or I take a pivot that I will get clarity? Because something I think that's really important for me to name is I didn't have a vision of what I wanted to do. I don't have, I didn't have a, oh, I want to go become a human design reader and a coach part-time. I knew I probably wanted to explore environmental law because that's something that had interested me for a long time. But I also had this fear that I didn't like law. And so I was like, what if I don't want to be a lawyer at all? What's out there for me? And I started to realize that I don't have to have it all figured out to make a change. I just need to have the next step. Can I pay for my you know, rent for whatever period of time? For me, it was six months. For some people, it might be can I get health insurance because I have a pre-existing condition or I have children? Can I pay for my rent and mortgage for the next two months or the next year or whatever it is for you? I don't need to have everything figured out. I'm in a place where I can take some risk and I can trust that things will come in once I move my position. I'm not in the best place where I am right now. One of the really important things I had to learn, and this took some time for me, was separating my identity from my work. Identity can come up in a lot of ways. Maybe you attach yourself certain qualities to your work. So as a lawyer, I am intelligent, competent, hardworking, and capable. Maybe as a creative, you are very creative. You're an artist. Maybe that's something really important to you. Maybe as an engineer, you're very solutions-driven or you're pragmatic. And maybe your career denotes a specific social status or a certain wealth trajectory, 
or certain type of quality, maybe it gives you a bohemian status or, or, or a cool girl or a cool guy or a free spirit status. And whatever it, that it does for your identity, can you separate it? Can you see that whatever those qualities that you love that you don't, you're afraid of letting go, can you see that they're already a part of you? So I'll use myself as an example. I am intelligent, capable, hardworking, whether or not I'm a lawyer. Being a lawyer did not make me intelligent, capable, and hardworking. It was an expression of those qualities that already existed within me. It was in law school that I kind of realized my intelligence and my possibility, even though I was a gifted student growing up, I think I still had, I think I had a lot of insecurity and I don't know, I, I think law school helped solidify my gifts and my talents for me. It's also, you know, I was in law school from the ages of like 21 to 24. I realized that even if I wasn't a lawyer, I was still those things. And even if whatever it is that you do for a career, you are still a free spirit or creative or pragmatic or whatever those qualities that you hold dear, regardless of what you do for work, you don't need to rely on this external validation to prove that to yourself. That was a big one for me to get my head around. And it was something that I still had a lot of fear even when I left. I was so afraid. I was afraid of people's judgment of me. I was afraid that people would think I just couldn't handle it, that I was lazy that I just wasn't smart enough to keep up. And I finally had to realize that even if people do think that, which they didn't, or if they did, no one told me, people were very supportive. But even if they did, I'd rather them think that and me be happy than me kind of try to protect myself from people who don't care about me or don't know me's judgment and keep myself miserable. The other big lesson I learned is grieving a vision I had for myself. I had this vision of being this really badass lawyer. I want to spend my whole career in law. That's why I went to law school. I took the New York bar and passed it. I also took and passed the California bar, which I did just in case I ever wanted to practice law in California. I had these really cool opportunities. I was like, I'm going to use this and I'm going to ride this out and I'm going to do something really cool and I'm going to impact things with law. And I still am involved in law, but it looks very different. And I don't know what the future holds for. I just, I truly don't know where it'll take me. And I had to grieve this vision of this kind of high powered working girl and realize that's not really what I wanted anymore. And I knew it's not what I wanted. I wanted a life that felt more spacious and more nurturing and loving and community driven and fun. And that was not aligned with this vision of me. Not that you can't be a hard, badass working girl and still have those things. You can. And I still think of myself as that. But the exact vision was different. And I had to grieve that I was not going to be a badass securities lawyer. Like I was not going to be a litigator in court, in an, like going in court, arguing my cases all the time. Like that was probably not going to be on my path. And I didn't really want that for myself. But I still had to grieve the sadness of letting that go and grieve the vi- the purpose that I thought I was going to have from it. I had to get honest with myself that this was not bringing the joy. Again, realizing I'm not happy. I don't think I made this point clearly before. I tried to convince myself that I loved it because there were parts of it that were really cool. I was so impressed by the lawyers around me. I was so excited by how talented everybody was. I was learning a lot. And I looked at those to try to be like, no, I these are all these great things. I love it. I can love it. I promise I can try to love it. And I can't, I can't try to love it because I don't, I could be grateful for it. 
I can be so grateful and you can be so grateful for everything you have and know you want to change it and know it's not for you. That was another thing that would come up. Am I just so ungrateful and lazy because I had this opportunity that so many people want? So many people wish they could go get a legal education and wish they could work in these sorts of roles and do and want that and work so hard for it. And I have that and I don't want it. And what's wrong with me? And I just had to let that go and just honor what was true inside of my heart because that's what matters most for my life. And I'm in charge of me. I'm in charge with making myself happy. And I am in, and it's okay for me to own my truth, be grateful, be like love where I've been and know that it's up to me to make sure that where I'm going is where I want to be going and not out of fear of judgment or insecurity or guilt. Depending on what your path is and what your career story looks like, all these lessons that I'm saying may be obvious to you, but they weren't obvious to me. They really weren't. These are things I really had to learn and internalize. It was very much, even like I think the way I talked about kind of the work culture felt so normal that even now I'm like, is it that big of a deal to have to work all the time on weekends? Is it that big of a deal to not be able to express yourself? And the answer for me is yes, it really was. It it very much decreased my quality of life, how I felt in my body, my expression of myself. But it was hard for me to own that and to say that. I felt like there was, I was lazy or there was something wrong with me or that was silly to feel like that. And it felt normal. So if you're out there and and you're in a job that's really difficult and people are like, why are you doing this? Because my non-law friends were like, what the, what? Like, you're just going to leave whatever we are and go home to work in the middle of our plans on Sunday. And it's like, yeah, I have to work. Like, duh. And you may be like, I know from the outside, this looks crazy, but it feels like this is what's supposed to be. And you are the one who gets to decide your career, but it is worth looking, especially if you don't feel happy and satisfied and fulfilled and successful and thriving. And I want to point out that the way that I was able to make these realizations it didn't just happen. Like I didn't make these changes, be able to make these mental shifts that allowed me to take actual changes and make real concrete changes in my life that have really been wonderful for me just on my own. This happened purely as a result of me investing my time into my personal development. This happened as a result of me working with a therapist to clear and to look at trauma and to look at my ability to connect with my emotions. My therapist, her name is Emily, and she's at Greenwich Center for Personal Growth. I'll put it in the uh, notes. She's awesome. You can see her, I think, on Zoom too. So I see her now that I'm in Vermont. She helped me so much and it really helped. It was a lot of somatic work. My, I saw a coach during this period, Danny Dillard, who is incredible. I'm going to speak more about that in the second part because she really helped me when I was leaving my job. I saw a lot of different healers. I was doing goals workshops and just taking on a lot of opportunities to grow and to examine um, what my feelings were, what you know, what I was feeling, how to express them, how to identify them. I was looking at my needs and getting clear about what are my needs and can I identify them? Can I see them? Can I feel confident in expressing them? And can I set them as a boundary? So if my needs aren't being met, 
I can understand why. All of this helped me better understand my fears so I could see the things I'm afraid of as a fear and not as a truth. So for instance, this fear that if I quit my job, people will see me as lazy or I will be lazy and incapable and unintelligent. And I could start to see that as that's a fear. That's not true. Like that's not necessarily true. Maybe some people will believe that actually says a lot more about them than it does me, but it isn't a just pure truth. That's a fear that I have. And I started being able to tell the difference. I started being able to discern what were things that I was afraid, what were stories that I was telling myself and what were things that were like much more grounded in reality and in my experience and and how could I navigate through these things. And in working on all this stuff, it helped me develop my self-confidence. I built my self-confidence through trying new things, through expressing my fears to other people. Um, I remember uh, my, a really good friend, I feel like I'm going to tear up saying this. I was telling him about feeling, I don't even know if I said it out right because I think I was still too scared, but like how working, it was a colleague of mine and working at Davis Polk made me feel smart. And I remember him saying, well, you are, you are smart. You are smart. You just also work here. And I don't know if he would even remember that, but I remember at the moment almost crying and that happened. I could start to kind of slowly, maybe even not even directly express a little bit of insecurity or bring language to it and would be surprised in how I was affirmed or met or the clarity I would experience, what it would open up for me. And that is, I'm so happy that I took the time to invest in my therapy and my coaches because they helped me build this and they just gave me the tools that allowed me to come to these lessons and learnings on my own, that then I could take that information and take these new mindsets and new ways of thinking about things and apply it in, in my own new confidence that I had built to seeing and being more open-minded to new ways of being in the world. I'm proud of myself. I don't say this from a place of arrogance. I just, I'm really am happy that I did that because some of those things were really hard. It was hard to admit these things to myself. It was hard to admit my insecurities to myself or to my therapist or my coach or to other people. And I'm so glad I did because that helped me see that that insecurity was a fear and it wasn't truth and it wasn't what everyone was thinking and it wasn't, it didn't have to be my reality. And all of that helped me decide, okay, I'm seeing I'm unhappy. I'm seeing that this isn't the right fit. I see that this isn't the place for me. I don't know where I'm going to go next, but that's okay. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to actually act on my emotions and my needs and I'm going to be brave here and I'm going to do something that feels scary for me. And I'll talk about that in the second part. I'll talk about kind of what act, like the trigger points. I know a lot of people are like, okay, well, I know I'm unhappy and I know this isn't good, but what do I do next? I'm going to talk about some of the practical things of it. Um, some of the, you know, things worried about references, how I might upset people, money, some things I still need to work through right at the end if I was leaving. And I just want to share my personal story and the details. So I'll do that in part two. That'll probably come out in a few weeks. If you have any questions, if you listen to this, let me know how this resonates. Let me know how this lands. Um, in part two, I can address if there's things I left out or things that you're curious about 
or challenges that you're having. So definitely DM me or send me your reflections. I would love, love to hear from you. And I'm really looking forward to kind of getting back into a rhythm of podcasting. I love sharing and connecting in this way. And I'm just excited. I'm excited to be here. Anyway, have a beautiful day. Thank you for spending this time with me. I am honored that you choose to spend your time with me. And I am so happy that you're here. And I will talk soon.